Decapolis. And he, they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephetha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. This is the word of God, the living and true God. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Lord, and we are encountering some strange hard words, strange at first glance and obscure at first glance. I pray that your scripture would make it clear to us and that your Holy Spirit would give us a comprehension of what this text means, not just the facts of the matter, but also how we should live, and that your Holy Spirit would assist us in all these things, that we might be able to also proclaim that Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, had done all things well. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. These are two rather strange stories, aren't they? And what makes them strange is slightly or really very different about each situation. What we see here is maybe for the first time that we've seen, and Jesus is in the Gospel of Mark especially, is that someone's coming after him and seeking Jesus' aid. And Jesus' response is to seem to put up a hand, to kind of stiff arm her. He makes things difficult for her. That's a pretty strange response, especially when you look at how Jesus has treated people so far. And not only that, but then we see something just more obscure and weird when we see the second story of Jesus healing a man, and he doesn't do it by just commanding it to be done or to be dealt with or just laying his hand on the man, but he sticks his fingers in his ears and he, touch, he spits and then touches his tongue. And if he spits on his hand and then touches his tongue, then it gets even weirder, at least for me. What's going on here? You know, I think that the strangeness, as always, is a, a really a sign to, for us to pay attention, to be close observers of what God's word is telling us. It's actually strangeness that should perk up even in the mind of Peter and why he's recording this incident, these two incidences. And these instances reveal something about God's grace that we wouldn't otherwise know. You see, it's interesting that both stories, even though they're, they're odd, and even though the one story, especially about the woman, the Gentile lady, seems like he's putting himself at a distance, what we see instead is that these two strange stories show us and unveil to us God's grace, his goodness. I think it's 
really important at this point to say that we just came out of a text at the very beginning of Mark chapter 7, really showing that the foundation of Christianity stems from and is derived from the Holy Scriptures. That the Scriptures, the Bible itself, is sufficient for teaching us all we need to believe about who God is, about how to live a life that's pleasing in Him, that if someone says, what must I do to be saved, that the Bible is enough. It's sufficient for that. And not only is it sufficient, but it's absolutely necessary that without the Bible, you and I would know nothing about who the Lord Jesus Christ is. We might have some myths and legends of the past, but they would be cobbled up oral traditions that we would have no way of discerning what's true and what's fake. But there's one other thing about the scriptures that I think we tend to overlook, which is the clarity of scripture. If we're going to say that all of Christianity is derived from the Bible, there's a certain required assumption here that the Bible speaks clearly. And doesn't that make sense? Which author writes a book without the intention of being understood? Every author writes with that intention. But there's a lot of variety of opinions on different matters. There's lots of different obscurities. And when we talk about the clarity of Scripture and how clearly God speaks, what we're not saying is that every individual will come to an equal comprehension of a text. What we're not saying is that everyone is just as capable as one another at reading and deriving the correct meaning of a text. What we are saying is that what we've been given in the scriptures is a book that through ordinary means of study, of investigation, you and I can all come to know the truth. Not that we're not going to be wrong about it, but that we're all given the tools. If you can read, you can interpret God's word. And I say that because this isn't probably the only strange instance that you've come across when you're reading your Bible. What ends up usually happening is one of two things when we come across something like this. We either say, well, this does not fit my worldview, does not fit my understanding of God. I think that this text is wrong. Or we can come to the conclusion that, you know, God writes to be understood. And if I'm not understanding this, either I'm wrong and I have a clear understanding of what's in front of me and I'm wrong, or I'm not understanding God's word correctly. And I think that's where, we off, where we're going to get and where we see in this both strange encounters and why we often don't see the grace of God. So let's look. Let's look at these two different examples. First, the strange response. And there's an outline in the back of your bulletins. I'm going to just keep saying that every time. I don't know how often I need to actually remind, but maybe eventually I'll stop. And what we have here in this strange response, there's not really a strange situation. I mean, we have Jesus entering into Gentile territory in verse 24. We see something that he's done a lot now, which is he's trying to go unnoticed, seeking to teach his 12 disciples. 
But his notoriety has grown to the point that being hidden was impossible for Jesus, even when he hid in someone's private home. Eventually, the news got out. And Jesus' route that he's begun into the north, Jesus' uh, ministry, by the way, is around, and all these, these first eight chapters of Mark is all situated around the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee is located north of Jerusalem. And he's been just going around, traveling by boat to different parts of the lake. And he hasn't really dabbled too much into Gentile territory. But here, right after he talks about clean versus unclean, he makes a decided effort to spend a lot of time in the northern region, which was almost universally uh, settled by pagan people, people who were long removed from Judaism, maybe had them as neighbors and had some sort of semblance of what Jewish people believe and what they taught. But the religion they professed was very different. But what they did see is Jesus's healing ministry. And if you look at Matthew chapter 15, the parallel text to this, you see that he ended up over the course of his stay in Tyre and Sidon and in the Decapolis in general, he ended up healing a lot of people. A lot of deaf people came to have hearing and eyesight. And Mark is just picking up on one of these events, or really two of these events in the north, in this Gentile region. So that's not surprising. It's not surprising that the woman who comes up to him is a Gentile Syrophoenician by birth. But it, what is surprising is Jesus's response to her. This woman who comes to him is introduced at the very beginning so to give you a sense of what's going on here. First, we see that this woman, basically her descriptors reads from a Jewish perspective as a list of demerits, a list of things that show that she's unclean and unworthy of God's grace. She's a Gentile. She's literally, the word there is reference to Greek. She has a Greek culture, Greek language. By birth, she's a Syrophoenician of the region, of the nation of Syria, if you've heard of that. And in Phoenicia, the city, which is now modern-day Lebanon, she's a part of a people group that is outside of the people of Israel, outside of the covenants of promise. It's in a region that, as Matthew terms her and calls her, that she's a Canaanite. She's part of the original group that was supposed to be totally and utterly expelled from the land in the book of Joshua when God's judgment came upon them. She's totally removed from God's promises. She doesn't have the promises for her that, God, that, that was given to Abraham in Genesis 15, that I will be your God and your people shall be my people. She's removed from God's promises. But she still comes to Jesus. And actually in Matthew chapter 15, when she comes up to Jesus, she calls him the son of David. She has a semblance, seeing all the miraculous activity, being drawn to him. She, she knows who he is as the son of David. 
and she comes and appeals for her daughter. So that part's not strange. The part that's strange and causes us a lot of pause here is what Jesus says to her. You know, we have um, lots of different evangelistic type techniques that we're told. And Jesus is not really fitting into any of them as we're reading through Mark's gospel. Typically, what it looks like in evangelism is we need to limit any offense. We need to engage with them, speak uh, people on their level. And we don't want to necessarily introduce any truth that might be too hard, that might be too offensive. Maybe we start off with something that you like, that Jesus, that he loves sinners. Do you love sinners? Yes. Okay. We're, we're on the same page here. Uh, Jesus loves that he wants to forgive people of their sins. Yes, he does. Okay. Uh, once you believe that and buy into that, I'll take you to church for a couple weeks and I'm going to try my best not to offend you and not to do anything that might distance me from you. But that's not what Jesus does here. Jesus actually says something that's rather offensive. He calls her a dog. You know, I came across, um, and this was actually back in March of 2021, there's a, uh, a homosexual pastor by the name of just to get this right, his name was Brandon Robertson, and he had a TikTok video where he quoted this text, and this is what he had to say about Jesus in this text. He said, did you know that there's a part of the gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? He calls a woman a dog, but she speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you think you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus's mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman. I feel like I'm reading blasphemous language because I am. Bear with me. I'm not saying these words. He says, I love this story because there's a reminder that Jesus is human. He has prejudices and biases. And when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work, and this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth, end quote, just to be clear. <laughs> Is that what's going on here? Is Jesus just speaking a racial slur here to this woman? No, that's not what's going on here. And just as a newsflash, even going into this, no other religion has done more than Christianity at elevating the dignity of women in particular. We've already seen so many times that women are often included, not in Mark, not only in Mark, but in all the Gospels as examples of great faith. Jesus alludes at the end of this section saying that this woman, that she has a great faith complimenting her. And we're even being held out as an example here uh, to imitate, in part, this woman's faith. So what is Jesus doing? Well, I'll say, first of all, he's saying something that we can't soften too much. He does call her a dog. The Old Testament actually refers to lots of different Gentile groups 
as dogs, as being unclean animals outside of the people of Israel. And I can try to soften it a little bit for you by saying that Jesus is here using a diminutive, a lesser version, maybe like little puppy. But still the distinction that Jesus is creating is he's creating the distinction between a child of a family and the household dog. We can only soften this so much. And if you love your dog as much as you love your children, probably we can speak about that later. What here is he's doing is he is creating a distinction. The key to understanding what Jesus is doing here, though, is to look at what he says first, the chronology of what he says. In verse 27, he said to her, let the children be fed First, this is actually something that we see throughout the entire New Testament. I think it's summarized best in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where it says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Also to all the nations. This might be offensive, but Jesus in his ministry, he came as the Jewish Messiah. Fulfilling the promises that were made to Abraham. He came to fulfill that covenant to a particular people. Jesus had a particular mission to save a particular group of people. And in this, the promises of God, that God is our heavenly father, that belongs exclusively to those who profess faith in Christ. You see, when the gospel comes to us, it doesn't really flatter us. The gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died to save sinners, speaks a really offensive word to people. It speaks to the fact that we are, by nature, not children of God, but children of wrath. That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And when we say fall short of the glory of God, what we mean is that all our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. That we have all sinned against a holy God and that we are all, by nature, alienated from him. And we actually all have to come to Jesus in the same manner that this woman comes to Jesus. Recognizing that we don't bring anything to the table. Her response to Jesus is really profound. She says in verse 28, and Jesus, when he says that she's a dog, that she is that the, Jew, the gospel goes first to the Jews, and then chronologically it goes to the Gentiles, that in his mission at this point, his primary mission is to die on the cross, and he has come as the Messiah of the people of God. Her response is, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. 
You notice that she actually agreed with Jesus. She said, that's right. I am unworthy. I am distant from God. I do not bring anything by my person, by what I'm worth, to the table when it comes to salvation. What he wants her to understand, and Jesus is doing all this situation, why is he putting her at a distance? Why is he saying this to her? Why is he not making it easy for her to believe? It's because God is really focused on not just making our faith comfortable, not making faith easy, but Jesus is interested in testing our faith. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 talks about the role of suffering. And he says about suffering, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the, testing, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What God is particularly interested of, especially in this life, is to see our faith grow, to see our faith tested, to prove to ourselves even the genuineness of our faith. Jesus is using her as an example to show what true saving faith looks like. True faith, saving faith is desperate. It knows its need. True saving faith is persistent. It won't be deterred by hardship or trial. True saving faith won't be deterred even at this offense. You know, there's something missing here about if this was just a racial slur of Jesus, is that the woman is not offended. She doesn't walk away saying, you know, let me call in uh, MSNBC and CNN to sh show the real story about who this guy is. No, she agrees. See, when it comes to the offense of Jesus, what we don't have recorded in Scripture is Jesus' tone the way Jesus said it, his body language, exactly what he's doing and how he's communicating these truths to her. What he's telling her is simply true. Something, what the Bible, what it speaks to those who are outside of Christ, that they are unworthy of God's grace. But that does not stop her from pursuing God's grace. What's amazing here is despite this, despite this testing, what her faith is shown to be is in her response. That's what Jesus is interested in bringing out here. And Jesus has been interested in drawing reactions out of people throughout his gospel. Whether the woman who touches his cloak and he says, who touched, who's the woman who touched me? And waits around and draws out the experience and the disciples have to come and say, well, Jesus there's a whole multitude around you. What do you mean who touched you? And he drew her out of the crowd to confess what 
Jesus had done in her life. And here she's been put through a trial, stiff-armed kind of at first, in order that she might pursue, show her desperation, show her persistence of what it looks like to have true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what happens. Isaiah 55 is still true here. Seek. If you seek after God, he will not turn you away. For the Lord is compassionate towards all who turn from their sins and trust in him. And what she recognizes is that that is true for the entire world for the exact same reason that we just read in Isaiah 55. That while although the Messiah is promised to come to the Jews for the the people of God, that the blessings were not to remain just among the people of the Old Testament, Old Covenant people of Israel, but that through blessing Abraham, all the nations would be blessed and that it would spill out over all. And she demonstrates a really quick wit here, doesn't she? I mean, that's a pretty smart response. She basically turns the tables on him and makes it really difficult for Jesus to say no. She says to him, even the dogs under the eat the children's crumbs. She says, yes, I am unworthy. Yes, I don't deserve God's grace. But even though I'm a dog, let me just eat what falls off the table. Let me eat your, the rich blessings that are being poured out on Israel as Jesus walks around through the streets of the Jewish nation and seeing how everyone is healed. Let me just get a taste of that. And Jesus blesses her for that statement. And she goes her way and the demon has left her. I do want to remind just one more time that the gospel does not come in order to flatter anyone. There is a certain level of offense that's built into the message that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. What we're assuming there in that good news is that there are people who are in desperate need of salvation. And for anyone to come to Jesus Christ They need to have a recognition of that desperation. They need to be persistent in that pursuit. And that pursuit is going to have a lot of different trials that test the genuineness of our faith. But the good news is, is that the kind of faith that God gives to his people is a persistent faith. One that perseveres through trial. One that when we encounter even difficult text, causes us to dive deeper into it to gain understanding as opposed to leaving it altogether. So we have a strange response, but then we have a strange performance. In the next section, he's still in the region, uh, the Decapolis, where the man, the demoniac who was healed, where he actually went about preaching throughout the Decapolis. There we go. I was eventually going to say it right where he went about preaching and explaining what God had done. And now the guy had arrived. And of course, he's not remained hidden here. And while he's there, a man who was deaf, and this is verse 32, deaf and had a speech impediment, was brought to him. 
And this word there for a speech impediment is interesting, not because it's only used one time in the Gospels, uh, but the word there is really interesting because it's only used one time also in the Old Testament. That speech impediment that Jesus heals is the same word that's only used in the Greek translation of Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, which Steve just read for us. Jesus, in bringing, these people did not have the intention of showing God's grace, did not have intention of really showing a fulfillment of the scriptures. And yet, Mark is showing us in this moment where he brought to them, this man is the exact fulfillment of that moment. That even those with speech impediment are brought to the Lord Jesus Christ and all are healed. But Jesus' healing of this individual, he takes him aside privately. What is he doing when he sticks his fingers in his ear and spits on his hand and touches his tongue? This man, mind you, he's deaf. He cannot hear anything. And not only that, but what often encompasses being deaf is it causes a speech impediment. You can't speak properly. So this man cannot communicate with his mouth. He cannot hear anything. And in the ancient world, this would probably be even more debilitating than being blind. And his friends bring him to, this, to Jesus. And Jesus, when he speaks to him, he speaks not in a, some Americanized or modern version of sign language. But Jesus still speaks to him in sign language. He communicates what he's doing to this man who's deaf and cannot speak, but he can see. He sticks his fingers into his ears, showing, I'm going to unstop your ears. I'm going to heal your ears. He then spits and touches his tongue, saying that this stutter that he has, this shackled tongue, He's going to unshackle that tongue that he can speak. He looks then up to heaven, showing him that this is not some mystical magic formula that's being, afraid, that's being done here. This man was probably a pagan living in a pagan land who can't hear even God's word. We don't know if he could read God's word or if he even had access to God's word. What's being communicated to him is that what's about to be done, this healing, is the work of God, the God who made the heavens and the earth. And then he sighs. And this sigh, oftentimes with a sigh, you have the, a visual component of a visual reaction that he often is accompanies in the Gospels with his emotion towards a broken, sinful world. You see, while the world is alienated from God, while it's under his wrath, he sent his son while we were yet sinners. He sent his world to redeem us, to restore us. Every aspect that sin has affected, God has, through his Messiah, has been chosen to be the chosen instrument who would restore creation back to its intended purposes, back to reconciliation with God. 
He speaks to him in sign language so that he would understand what's going on. But he doesn't stop there. Afterwards, after this strange healing, he immediately charges them to tell no one. You know, it's amazing that the same group of people who says a line that we should all say and all agree with heartily is that Jesus does all things well. He heals well. He teaches well. He teaches God's truth well. He heals perfectly. You know, Jesus could have healed this man without saying a word. That's what just happened to the daughter. That little girl who was healed and was exercised of her demon. Jesus didn't even have to issue a command for it to happen. And yet she was perfectly delivered. The touching and the manner of his healings are always for the benefit of those who see. Or the benefit of us who have God's word and can see connections and fulfillments of the Old Testament. It affirms to us that Jesus Christ really is who he says he is as the Messiah and also the Son of God. He does all things well. But this, dear friends, comes out of the mouth of people who are purposefully, willfully disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Does that shock you as much as it shocks me? That people can be convinced that Jesus is really healing people of the power of God. That Jesus is something greater than anyone who else has come along. And yet still disobey him. Shocks me. I think it's a testament also of that same kind of faith that this woman had. You see, true saving faith agreed with Jesus agreed with what he said about her condition. She walked away in faith. Jesus said, go, your daughter is healed. And she went knowing that her daughter was delivered. But that type of saving faith does not always proceed or does not always accompany in a profession of faith. When we say that people are saved by faith alone, no one's saved by a faith that is alone. We're saved by Jesus Christ alone through the instrumentality of faith, but not the type of faith that merely professes Jesus's goodness, that he does all things well, that even Jesus is God, for even the demons believe that Jesus is God. The type of faith that's an instrument of our salvation is a type of faith that believes Jesus, that clings to him as our only hope in life and in death. One that necessarily obeys Jesus. One that pursues Jesus. And we can't do that perfectly. But the direction of our lives as sinners saved by grace is one of pursuit after Christ and Christ-likeness. I think we can end with this note of looking at something I've promise now to kind of uh, inform a little bit more and more of as we go and read through the Gospels. Something else that's not very strange is that Jesus charged them to tell no one. 
And I keep saying that there's multiple different reasons. So I hope that as the course, as we go throughout all the gospel, we'll come to some sort of comprehensive view of all the different reasons why Jesus does charges them to tell no one. Why he is not openly showing them that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And I think when he's speaking to Gentiles, I think that important here is to realize that Jesus, when he came, the good news of the gospel is not that Jesus came to heal people. The good news of the gospel is not that Jesus did all things well, that he taught God's word, that even God came to dwell with people in the incarnation. That's part of the good news, but it's not the extent. It's not even the summary of it. The summary of Jesus of the good news of Jesus Christ is that Jesus Christ died to save sinners. And his saving sinners was so complete that he rose again from the dead. And that who we have right now at the right hand of the Father is an intercessor who is living, who is alive after having paid for our sins. You see, when the good news, the good news first came to the Jews, and he came as the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he revealed that very clearly to his people. The good news, as it would go out and spread throughout the entire globe, starting in Acts, was that Jesus Christ died to save sinners, and that the accomplishment of what he did on the cross is good news for the entire world. And you're, when you get home, read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, where he speaks to Gentiles, Paul here, and says, Remember at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called uncircumcision by what is called circumcision, which is made with the flesh by hands. Remember, Gentiles, that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. Romans 2 says that this alienation that's due by sin because of sin is a problem for Jews and Gentiles. But only the Gentiles do not have even access to God's promises, a promise of redemption by a redeemer. Verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. The Gentiles, even in our text here, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus had not yet died. His blood had not yet been shed. The new covenant had not been established. But it would be. You see that order of chronology that he emphasized with the woman, that it goes to the Jew first and also to the Greek? It's an order of chronology. But it doesn't mean a priority of Israel being better than everyone else. For all are sinners and all are equally under God's wrath. But a day came, and the reason why Jesus came was to make a route of salvation for the entire world. That the promises that were given to Abraham would get, be given to 
all those who have an Abraham-like faith in the God who actually can save sinners. Isn't that good news? Doesn't this create an incentive for sharing the gospel with boldness and passion? We don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. We don't want to leave things unexplained for people. But we need to speak, I think, and I'm preaching more to myself at the moment. We need to be a little bit more ready and willing to offend people for the sake of people's souls. We need to be more ready and more willing to speak God's word, knowing that the gospel of God can save all sinners, even those who seem really far off, even those we think are unsavable, even those who we think we might be able to, with our winsome personalities, maybe not offend them and really clean Jesus up a little bit and prep, prepare them for maybe figuring out some of those harder things later on. No, we preach the Christ, Jesus dying to save sinners. We entrust, you know what? The power to save sinners is not in us, but is in him and his word to convict us of our sin, to show us our unworthiness and to drive us to cling to the cross for salvation. And some of us feel like, Maybe that woman or that man and feel that Jesus has put us at a distance. That we feel that Jesus Christ has maybe left us out of the pale of hope that we've been praying for so long for Jesus to save us. And he hasn't really responded yet. Or we're going through suffering, consistent suffering, and not knowing why would God and his good will have us to go through this. Why would Jesus not immediately rescue this woman and not let her go through the pain of feeling rejection and having her faith tested? But dear brother and sister in Christ, the testing of your faith is of much value. Whatever suffering you go through in this life, it proves by the testing of our faith, proves the value of it. If we're trusting in Jesus Christ and our faith is proven genuine, it's more precious than anything else that God could possibly give us in this life. Because what we have then to cling to is not the hope of just being temporarily relieved of some of our suffering just to eventually die one day. But instead, what we have to cling to is we have the type of faith that's saving, not because of how strong it is, but because of how sure and good our Redeemer is to save us. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that you have shown us that even in our suffering, that Christ has a purpose in it. That everything he does, not just here in our text, but even in our own lives, that the path that we walk, The suffering that we go through, all of it will be used for the glory of our God. The glory, as 1 Peter tells us, of Jesus Christ and his honor and his fame, and also for our good. Lord, may you grant us faith in you. And may we, as we go through our suffering and have it proving our faith and testing it by trials, 
May we be encouraged. May we, through that, gain assurance that the Jesus Christ who died to save sinners, that he died for our sins, that he bore our sins on his body on the tree so that we might die to ourselves, that he died for us so that we might live for him. We love you, Lord, and we praise your holy name. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to respond to God's word by singing his praises.